Good evening. Welcome to week three of this three-week practical theology course titled Women in Ministry. This is recorded on July 6, 2016, and we are glad that you are tuning in. Just to recap, in week one, we looked at the key text used to restrict women from being elders or pastors or preach from the pulpit, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. If you haven't listened, I encourage you to go back and listen and hear why we believe that the instruction Paul is giving here is for the church in Ephesus in their context, that there is application for us today, but it is not specifically to restrict women from roles in ministry. And then in week two, we went back to the created order. We said, in the creation order with Adam and Eve, do we see restrictions on roles um, that Eve is not allowed to do because she's a woman? Uh, and we said we didn't see any. In We looked in the rest of the Old Testament and we saw several women who are in roles of, of leadership where they would have been in authority over men and also where they were teaching the scriptures. In the New Testament, we saw examples of women in the, in the early church who were given roles of authority and even, even teaching and being affirmed in their teaching, even over men in the New Testament. Um, we understand that there are great theologians on both sides of this argument, and I, we love what John Stott says. He says, when things are clear, teach them as clear. When things are unclear, use wisdom. And of course, everybody believes that it's clear, that their stance is clear, but I think the humble and the better way to look at this is, since there's so many great theologians who disagree on this, then it's decidedly unclear. And what we, our job is to use wisdom, specifically, how are we going to apply this at Remembrance Community Church? Um, Jesus made a great statement. He said, why do you look at the speck of dust in other people's eyes and you ignore the huge speck of dust in your own eye or the huge log in your own eye, the plank in your own eye? Our job is to look at the plank in our own eye and say, this is how we believe God has called us to do church in Lomita, Remembrance Community Church in our day not look at other churches and try to tell them how to do church. So that's not the intention of this class. We just want to give a biblical explanation for why we do what we do. Here in week three, we're going to look at a handful and a half of additional supportive um, Bible verses and other arguments that are often used by the restrictive stance to support their stance. And why. Um, and we're going to evaluate them and say, why, why do we not um, give these a lot of Wait, what, what, what's our answer to these um, restrictive um, questions or Bible verses um, that are used? So let's dig in. The first one is this. Does 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35 also restrict women from preaching? I say also because they want to support their key text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we looked at week 1. But does this support that and give it weight? 1 Corinthians 14.33-35 says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 
So if we're going to use this argument, we have to say, what exactly is Paul saying? He's saying that women should be silent in church and they're not allowed to speak and that they should, if they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home. Uh, and it was disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Um, is Paul restricting a woman from preaching? I would say no way. There's no possible way that this is doing that. Uh, what, is, what is he doing? I think that he's, what he is doing is, is he's, he's trying to correct some issues that are going on in the Corinthian churches uh, where, where for whatever reason there's disorder and there's disruption. Okay? This is clearly instruction specific for the Corinthian context. This is not for us today. And even more so, um, this has nothing to do with preaching. This is instruction for the audience. What we would have to be making an argument is that women in the audience are not allowed to speak. This has nothing to do with preaching. To use this argument as a, as a restriction for women in preaching is to take this completely out of context. Um, and I don't think that any of us want to do that. So 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35 does not restrict women from preaching, clearly. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... You see Paul affirming that women are going to, in the church context, are going to prophesy, which they would prophesy out loud and pray. And then we assume that they would be praying out loud in the church. Um, so there seems to be some contradiction from our vantage point, And we have to give the benefit of the doubt and say, if you were there in that context, what Paul is saying here would probably make a lot of sense. But it's certainly rooted in the Corinthian context. So that's not a great argument. That's a weak argument in our estimation. Number two, does Paul's list of qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 point to authority and teaching roles for men only? That's a lot to take in. Specifically, what, what they would be arguing here is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have two lists of qualifications. One is for elders and the other is for deacons, okay? So let's look at both, and what they're gonna be pointing out is, it, there's, there's two differences they're gonna say in the lists. The list for the elders has two additional things that we don't find for the deacons, and they wanna make the statement that that has to do with teaching and authority over men, which we're gonna look at, and I'm gonna try to argue, uh, no, it doesn't. First Timothy, Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, first of all, is the list for elders. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That would be elder, overseer, or bishop. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. They're going to use this, able to teach, meaning that's the preaching part. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. That's the authority of the man um, over his family. It says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. 
And that concludes the the qualifications that, that Timothy Paul that Paul gives to Timothy in First Timothy chapter three, specifically for elders. And then he gives a list for deacons. He says, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious, talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now there's some assumptions that the restrictive stance makes to try to make this as an argument for their position that women um, should not be in authority over men or in teaching roles. And the assumptions are these. First, they assume that men only can be elders. At Remembrance Community Church, we don't argue with that. We, we hold that men, we, we believe that's wise in our application to have men be elders, and that includes the lead pastor because he's on the elder team. And then number two, they assume that men and women can be deacons. We agree with that. Men and women can be deacons. Um, men should be elders. Men and women should be deacons. We don't have a problem with those first two. Here's the third one, that the elder distinction is preaching and authority. Here's where we're saying, nope, they're stretching the, the context so far out of context to try to make their point, and that's not good Bible, Bible method, okay? Um, first of all, the deacons would have, been authority, would have been under the authority of the elders. That's clear. In the church, the deacons, they would have been under the authority of the elders, but the, el the deacons would have had authority over some men. All the deacons, and there were some that were women, would have, would have been given positions where they would have been authority. They would have been in leadership roles. They would have been leading a ministry. These aren't Deacons aren't the people who are doing the work. They're people who are organizing and leading the teams, leading the ministry teams. Different teams, depending on what the needs were for the church, you would raise up a deacon, and they could be men or women, and they would have authority over everybody in their ministry. That's, that's, that's healthy leadership. In our church context today, if you look at it like this, if a church has a woman who's a children's ministry director and you had men and women that were serving on the children's ministry team, we would expect that all of the men and women who are serving on that team would respect the leadership of the woman who was in charge of the ministry. That's just healthy. She's empowered by the elders to have authority over her ministry so that it can, it can do the purpose of, of discipling children um, that's that's the goal of the ministry, and for so so in a healthy ministry, some women are going to be an authority even over men. That's healthy. We see that in the church today, in all church, most churches, and we see that in the scriptures, right? So deacons would have been an authority over some men. So to say that this is saying that only elders had authority, I, I think is just a stretch. Secondly, it is clearly not. A necessary qualification for all elders to preach from the pulpit. They use this section in 1 Timothy chapter 3 um, in, uh, in verse 2. It says that an elder must be able to teach. What this means is an elder needs to be able, he needs to know the scriptures. He needs to be able to sit down one-on-one -on -one or in a small group setting 
and teach teach the Bible in, in, in the application of the Bible. You need to be, be able to speak into people's lives, give biblical counsel, give biblical instruction. You need to be able to teach in that way. This is clearly not saying that all elders need to be preachers. And I and I, I'll use uh, another text in First Timothy chapter five, the same letter. First Timothy chapter five seventeen says. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. That's, that's, that's paid position. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So what is Paul saying in, in chapter 5? He's saying some elders have the role of preaching and teaching. What's the assumption? Some elders do not preach and teach. Not all elders preach and teach. So to, so to try to make chapter 3 saying that all elders have to be able to preach and teach, and that's a distinction unique to the elders. And then in two, ver- two chapters later, he says, no, some elders don't preach. That's, that doesn't make any sense, right? So clearly, this is not saying that elders need to preach and teach, and only elders have authority over men. That's just absurd. Sorry, but that is a weak argument. So I would say, does Paul list qualifications of elders and deacons point to authority and teaching roles for men only? Uh, no. Number three, does 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, that's the, that's the verse that we just looked at, does that point to men, as, men only as teachers? We'll read it again. It says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not, mo- do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, what is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 5? Um, basically, he's saying this. Paul is saying that good preaching takes time and is worthy of being a paid position. That's what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say that good preaching takes time and it's worthy of being a paid position. In other words... It seems to be the the best practice that when you pay somebody to do full-time ministry or part-time ministry, you're paying them to free them up, not have to do something else to make money so that they can spend their time and energy doing ministry. You're, you're, You're buying their time so that they can do what God's called them to do. And he's saying here that, that, that he affirms that, that good preaching takes time is worthy of a paid position. He is not trying to restrict women from this position. He's just saying that the elders who do preach and teach uh, are worthy to get paid for it. Number B in our notes is this. Churches allow preachers who are men, but not elders to preach. If you're going to use this uh, uh, this verse to say that only men can teach, actually you'd have to be even more strict than that. You would have to say only men who are officially elders could preach because that's what he's talking about elders who preach and teach if only elders are allowed to preach and teach then we would have to say that in our churches nobody who's not officially an elder is allowed to preach and teach and i don't believe that that we need to do that most churches don't do that most churches within the restrictive stance will allow men who are not officially elders they'll allow them to preach so it's just a, in my estimation this is just a, a stretch, trying to stretch the Bible, make it say what you want it to say, and that's not good practice. Uh, also, we would say, 
you could make the argument that this is saying that only elders who elders and elders who are preaching and teaching are are qualified to be in paid position. Clearly, churches are free to pay men and women for positions that take time and skill. Not only elders qualify for paid ministry positions. Not only elders are 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 eligible to preach and teach. That's just not what this Bible verse is saying. So does 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18 point to men only as teachers? I would say no. I think that's a weak argument. Um, number four, does Paul teach that only men are given the gift of teaching? Now in Romans chapter 12, this verse is sometimes used. It's a very weak argument and, and it's the weakest of the ones that I've, I've stated so far in my estimation. Because in Romans 12, 5 through 8, this is from the ESV version, it says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual, individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So that's pretty clear. Um, in the church, everybody has a role. Everybody has gifts. They're different gifts. Um, but everybody who has their gifts should use them. So everyone should be using their gifts in the church. And then he gets specific. He says, uh, if prophecy in proportion to their faith, our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, it says in the ESV, the one who exhorts, or, or it could be preacher, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, so the restrictive stance, some might say, here in this, in this, it seems like Paul is indicating that he expects that when they're teaching, it's going to be his, it's going to be men only. Here's the problem with that. None of these male or female pronouns are in the original Greek, right? In the, we believe that the Bible is inerrant in its original autograph in Greek. This is translated into English by translators and the ESV translators add the his and the R's. They add the, the male and female pronouns. That's not supposed to be there. Why do they add that? They're trying to be helpful. Um, and I would state that they're not being helpful. In other translations, um, like the NIV and the NASB, it's all different. They use different pronouns. Why? Because it's not in the original Greek. It's added. So this is a very weak argument. More than that, all gifts are given by grace and they're never specified by gender in the scriptures. I'll give you a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. So we don't see any restriction of, of are these going to be male or female? We just see apostles, which is, the apostle here is not like the, the, the eyewitness apostles, like the 12 um, plus Paul. What this is, is this is a, a, a apostle gift, is a gift of going out and starting new ministries. Probably in their day, it was people who were going out on missionary journeys and were planting churches. We're making disciples and planting churches, apostles. Uh, and then he says, that's first of all, that's first importance, because that's a big deal. If you have people who are going out and planting churches, that's very helpful for the church. So he lists that first. And then he says, second, prophets. Prophet, the prophet gift is very good, because we want to know what, we all, we all want to know what God has to say. 
And, and the prophetic gift is very important. He gives that a second importance. Third, teachers. So in the hierarchy, prophecy is listed above teacher. And we see in 1 Corinthians 11 that women are allowed to hold that role of prophet. And that if we're going to use this restrictive stance, one argument would be, why, why does Paul give a more important role to women of being prophet and, a, and he restricts them from a lesser important role, which is teaching? That's just one interesting thought. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Another list of gifts. So Christ himself gave the apostles, remember those missionaries and church planners? Uh, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor, and the teacher. Again, no list of gender specific. All gifts are given by grace, never specified by gender in the Bible. Uh, also, all gifts are given to both men and women. We believe that all of the gifts are given to men and women. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, 17 and 18, it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days, and they will prophesy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 6, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in every one, it is the same God at work. Seems to be saying that all the different types of work and all the different types of gift are given to men and women. So I think it's a weak argument to say that um, that somehow Paul was making this argument that women don't have the gift of teaching or leadership. No, clearly they do have the gift of teaching and leadership. And from, uh, from Paul's argument in Romans chapter 12, if they have the gift, then we should let them use it. That's what he says. So I think it's a weak argument. Uh, number five. This is a good one. If Paul was trying to allow women in these roles, why wasn't he more clear? So the, the, the thought process here is that, that clearly, um, for most of history, Paul, uh, women have been restricted from many things. Women have been restricted from many things in history. In, when, in the time when Jesus came and when Paul is doing ministry, clearly there was a bias against women. We, we see that clearly. So there's a bias against women in their culture. And if Paul was trying to reverse that bias and allow women to do these roles, why didn't he come out and say it more clearly? My, uh, my, my response here would be, I agree with that. If Paul was here today, I would say, hey, Paul, why didn't you be more clear on this? But, but, we cannot assume that because Paul is hard to understand, or not as thorough as we would like, that, that we can assume anything from that. You can't assume anything from that. This, it's, 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 it's a poor judgment. It's a poor use of an argument to say on either side. Because I could say, um, if, if Paul was clearly trying to restrict women from being elders and pastors and preachers, why didn't he clearly say that? I could use that same argument, and it's a weak argument. I don't want to use that argument. 
sometimes I have used that argument and I, I'm admitting now uh, it's not really a strong argument on either side of the case. Look what it says in the Bible. 2 Peter, Peter speaking. 2 Peter 3.16. Peter says this about Paul's letters. He says, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter is saying, without the 2,000 years removed from the cultural context that we face today and make it hard to understand the scriptures, if you remove all of that and you go back to Paul's day, and Peter was a contemporary, obviously, of Paul, and he's saying even in their day, it was, Paul was saying things that were hard to understand. Paul is, is, is hard to understand, and he's not as thorough as we would like in lots of areas, and that's, we can't assume that that supports our stance. It's just not a good argument. Number six, why did Jesus choose 12 men to be his disciples? I even read a blog recently from one of the complementarian, hard complementarian uh, uh, theologians, popular theologian. He said, this is the embarrassment to the egalitarians that Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples. Um, Earth to blogger. I'm not embarrassed by that. It's, it's the, the assumption that this, this blogger and many are making is that Jesus picked men because it was his clear intention for men to be elders, pastors, and preachers. I'm simply saying that that is so spec, speculative that it's at the point of ridiculous, right? It's, it's ridiculous to assume that the only reason Jesus picked 12 men was because he was trying to to affirm the restrictive stance and, and, and not allow women to be elders or pastors or preachers. That's so speculative. There are too many other reasons why he could have. Clearly, the Bible does not tell us why Jesus picked 12. For us to make an assumption that we know why he did is to go beyond the scriptures. And we're not allowed to go beyond the scriptures. It's not good to go beyond the scriptures. We could say that Jesus was working within the customs of his day. His intention wasn't to reverse the restrictions on women in his day. His, his goal was to spread the gospel and transform the world through the building of the church, right? He gave to his disciples, he said, I'm going to give you the keys of this ministry and you're going to do greater things than I'm doing now. What is he saying? He's not saying that they're going to do greater miracles and greater works like that. What he's saying is, that the impact that you're going to make by building the church is going to be a greater impact. It's going to transform the world more than what we're starting here today. When Jesus died on the cross, he started something beautiful, and it's our job to continue to spread it. And the church keeps growing, and it keeps getting bigger, and, and more and more people are getting saved. And that is his goal, to work within what he, what the, 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 the culture that he found himself in, and to, and, and, and to start a redemptive movement, right? He didn't, he didn't change everything all at once, right? We could use the same argument for slavery. Why didn't Jesus abolish slavery? Well, I don't believe Jesus affirmed slavery, but he, he and, and Paul gives teaching to slaves. He says to slaves, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But if you can't, let me give you some, some advice about how to be a good Christian in whatever place you find yourself in, even slavery. So he, he doesn't abolish slavery, but he, he tells them how to be good slaves. 
how to be good witnesses as slaves. Why? Because his goal was to spread the gospel, not abolish slavery. Years later, many, many years later, slavery was abolished, right? At least in some context. And we still face some forms of slavery today, like human trafficking. We should still fight it. The Bible doesn't affirm slavery. It, I, I think it wants redeem, the redemption of all people. But Jesus didn't abolish slavery. He didn't abolish um, restrictions in women in his culture. But Jesus did allow women to do many things not assumed proper in his day. He did start this revolution. He did start uh, uh, turning this uh, this bias against women. He did turn it upside down in his day. Uh, we got, first of all, Mother Mary. I mean, God uses a woman to bring uh, Jesus into the world. The angel went to Mary first, and then later Joseph, right? The woman at the well, she was even dumbfounded. Why are you talking to me? I'm a woman, right? Because it wasn't normal in their day. Mary and Martha. Mary sits at Jesus' feet in the, in the position of, of a disciple, which was uniquely for males in that day, right? She sits like a disciple. Jesus says what she's doing is better than what Martha's doing. What's Martha doing? She's not doing anything bad. She's being hospitable. The, the, the Jewish value was that hospitality was a huge value. What Martha was doing was a good deal. But what Mary was doing, sitting at the feet of Jesus in the, in the position of being a disciple, Jesus affirmed it, right? That would have been controversial in his day. Women funded his ministry, right? Men are only supposed to be the providers. Well, Jesus used women to provide for his ministry, right? Uh, and the biggest one, the first, the first humans who, who it was announced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The biggest, the biggest argument for Christianity is the resurrection. And women were given that announcement first. And they were given the instruction to go back and to inform the men to form the disciples of it. So God, in the scriptures, gives a lot of responsibility, a lot of value, a lot of roles to women. We can't assume that just because Jesus initially chose 12 men to be his disciples, that somehow that's affirming that was, that was the way he wanted to be always, all time, only men as elders, pastors, or preachers. We're just trying to stretch the scriptures and make it say something that it doesn't, and I don't think that that's healthy. Uh, number seven, people use this. It's called the slippery slope of compromise argument. Now, here's the assumption. The assumption is this, and I, and I heard a, a well-known <laughs> complementarian theologian who blogs on a, on a, on a, a well-known popular blog um, site, and he said this. He said, if we let women preach, next we will allow homosexuals to preach, right? It's a slippery slope. If we compromise and allow a woman to preach, then what's going to be next? We'll how, how will we compromise next? What's the assumption? The assumption and the assumption is that our stance is not based on sound Bible study, but wimpy compromise to cultural pressure, which I would say our stance is not wimpy, uh, wimpy compromise to cultural pressure. Our stance is that we've looked at the scriptures and we don't believe that the scriptures restrict women from doing these roles, right? Um, so our rebuttal is, it's not a compromise to obey the teaching of scripture. It's not a compromise to obey the teaching of scripture, which is what we're doing. I would give you a sarcastic rebuttal. The sarcastic rebuttal is this. 
If you're going to say that it's a slippery compromise, a slippery slope of compromise, that if we allow a woman to preach, then next we'll allow you know, a homosexual to preach, is their argument. We could, we could look at it the same thing and say, if you're going to be um, overly restrictive, more restrictive than the Bible teaches, if we're going to make that assumption that they're being more restrictive than the Bible teaching, we could say it's a slippery slope to do that. We could say, if we, res- if we restrict a woman from preaching, then next, we can restrict them from voting, <laughs> right? Uh, it's a slippery slope either way. Our job is to look at the scriptures and obey the scriptures, to not go from the left or the right from the scriptures, to be centered in on the scriptures. And when we do that, there's no slippery slope of compromise. It's just simple obedience to what we believe the Bible is saying. So I think it's a, that's a, a, a weak and offensive argument. I don't think that they should make. Number eight. This is a good one. They say, 2,000 years of church history cannot be wrong. Right? In other words, for 2,000 years, they're assuming the, the church has held these restrictive, uh, uh, these restrictions, women can't be elders, pastors, and preachers, and how could 2,000 years of church history be wrong? Okay, five points. <laughs> Number eight, Jesus didn't model this value, right? Jesus came and the Pharisees, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, the temple history, church history, had created all of these, uh, these oral traditions. They had very clear restrictions for what, um, what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. 39 uh, fences that they had built of how to protect the Sabbath. Jesus knocked down those fences. Jesus modeled this. The authority of scriptures not temple or church tradition. We don't, we don't have to obey church tradition. But we, our task is to, to obey the authority of the scriptures. Um, if the church has been wrong on many things, right? For thousands of years. And we don't need to just follow in the footsteps of our fathers. I mean, read through the Kings and the Chronicles. Many of those, if they followed that, let's just follow in the footsteps of our fathers and they would have been going farther and farther away from God. And many of them did. That's not a good model for how to live your life. We're supposed to look at the scriptures, give those authority, not tradition. Jesus did not model this value. Secondly, B, look at Acts 15. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas stood up for the truth that not all Christians needed to be circumcised, and they stood up against the majority of leadership in their day, right? They didn't, they didn't say that uh, all these theologians and these, the church history so far, um, how could it be wrong? No, they said, this is clearly wrong. And they brought correction to it. Here's something ironic. The strongest complementarian restrictive voice today is the reformed camp of our day, right? In the Reformation, we saw reform. Reform from church tradition. What they did, rightfully so, is they said there's many things that the church in their day had gotten wrong. They had gotten away from the scriptures. They were, they were holding uh, uh, stances and making rules that weren't biblical and were unhealthy and were not good for the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church. So they brought reformation. If we're going to celebrate reformation in, in that way, how can we... Uh, how can we um, judge 
any type of reformation in any day, if it's biblical, right? It's just a weak argument. And as we looked at in week two, arguably, the New Testament church had women in roles that many would restrict today. So I don't think 2,000 years of, of, of church history does support the restrictive stance. It's probably more weighted towards that, but the whole world has always been more biased in that way. That doesn't mean it's right. Letter E. Evidence reveals that women were much more restrictive, much more restricted after the first 300 years of church history. When you really look at 2,000 years of church history, it's not all equally um, holding stances on this argument. In many times in history, they were way more restrictive of what women couldn't do than any church is today. Are, are we to say that 2,000 years of church history can't be wrong and we can't, we can't, no. No one does that. Our goal is not to look at church history as our model. It can be helpful and we can learn from those who came before us, but our job is to look at the scriptures and say, what does the Bible say and obey that? I'll give one last, one last argument in verse nine. We were at a conference and a guy was teaching um, on, on how, to, how to lead men's ministry. And he made this argument. He said, the best argument, this is what he said. He said, the best argument to restrict women from roles of leadership in the church is that men won't follow women. He said, you don't want, you don't want women to be in roles of leadership because we want men to be in our churches. He said, women will follow men, but men will not follow a woman. In other words, he's saying if you have women in leadership, what you're going to find is that, that your church will only attract women and no men will go to your church and you'll be missing out on the men in your society. And his argument was that um, it's important to have men in your churches, that men, um, there's, there is evidence that when men are, in, uh, are, are, in the, are, are, are engaged in their homes and in leadership, that, you know, that good things happen and all of that. Well, here's my thing. To make the assumption that men will not follow women is, is just sickening to me, right? Men won't follow women. Well, then teach them to follow women. That would be my argument, right? Why be an enabler? If men have a bias and, they, and they're too prideful and they won't sit under the leadership of a woman, are we to say that, that if, a, a, if you have a children's ministry director who's a woman, no men will be in that ministry. No men will want to serve in that ministry because they won't follow a woman. Well, then, then teach against that pride. Tell them to, to humble themselves. And, and, and it's just a weak argument. I, I don't know. It, it's, that's, a, that's the most offensive of all of them. Now, the interesting thing was at that conference, later we were talking to one of the women who went to that, that pastor's church. He made the statement. He said, we have, we have a church, and he was proud to announce that it was more men than women. We, and we found a, a woman who was at, the, at the, that conference that went to that church, and she said that that's not true. <laughs> that at their church, it looks like most other churches, and there's men and women there, and, and, that, and that's a good thing. 